0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and I hope you open them to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And as you turn there, Nancy Guthrie is a Christian author uh, that's written several books. She wrote a book about burying two of her own baby children who had both died of the same genetic disease. They had had one child... And they, and they didn't know they had this genetic, they were both carriers. And if you were both carriers, then you had the possibility of having a child with this disease. And, and indeed, their daughter, who they named Hope, uh, had that disease and died. And so after considering the circumstances and their own family situation, uh, the husband decided to have a vasectomy so that they uh, would not have any more children. And yet as these things can happen they did indeed have another child a son and indeed he had this disease of which was fatal for both of these children In her book about this experience she titled the book this Holding on to Hope The Pathway Through Suffering to the Heart of God Holding on to Hope The Pathway Through Suffering to the heart of God. There's a lot of truth, isn't there, in that simple title. Just as there's a lot of truth here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let's see it there. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to take away from this verse In this passage, in this message this morning, it's this. Confidence to enter into God's presence is shown by taking bold action to hold fast. Hold fast as a new covenant believer priest. Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Now I try to reduce every message to one big main idea, and ironically, you know, when you have one sentence, that's kind of the main idea right there. But here's what I came up with to kind of fill it out so that you understand the context. Never as believer priests, and you've got to understand we've established in this series, in the previous messages, that we are believer priests. So everything that we're being commanded here is is in light of our position as believer priests. Never waver in holding fast to your hope of entering God's presence. Why? Due to Christ's priesthood. And here's why. Because God's promise-keeping guarantees it will be worth it in the end. Or to put it in just another way, hold on to your new covenant hope because God's new covenant promises are the pathway through suffering into His presence, into His very presence. Now, that simple verse packs a whole lot of truth. In one command, so much truth that really to understand what that command means, you've got to study Hebrews five through ten. I mean, he doesn't tell you what the hope is. He doesn't tell you why you why you might waver. He 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 doesn't tell you uh, what the promises are because he assumes you have read. Now we we can't review five through ten, but where are we in the context of chapter ten? And so, just taking verses nineteen. Through Up through 23, I kind of laid out the idea of what we have studied though, so far, and it's this. As believer priests who have complete confidence to enter into his holy place, verse 19, by means of the wrath-satisfying blood of Jesus, verse 20, on the basis of the sinless mediation of our great high priest and ruler over us as God's people, verse 20. Here's what we do. Because of who we are, and by these means, and on this basis, we take bold action to draw near to God's holy presence with sincere hearts and full assurance of faith, verse 22, and then this morning, and we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because God is faithful. Now, as you read through, as I've had to do, to uh, prepare for these lessons. You've got to read through Hebrews, the preceding chapters. And I realize that there's three things that we are to hold fast to in the book of Hebrews. And here they are. The first is hope. We're to hold fast to hope, as we, we see here. But we're also to hold fast to confidence. Confidence. And the third thing that we're told in this book to hold fast to is our confession. And as you read through verses that tell us to hold fast, and there's, there's numerous of them in Hebrews because it's kind of the theme of the book, you see that these three ideas of hope, confidence, and confession are interrelated. By faith, we have confidence to draw near to God's holy presence right now. But we live by faith, not by sight. Our hope is that we will draw near physically in glorified bodies, in resurrected bodies, into the very presence. So we draw near to one we don't see by faith in hope that our faith will become sight. And one day we will draw near in the coming kingdom to God's physical, uh, spiritual, glorious, glorious presence, including the Lord Jesus Christ, who has a glorified body, the same body in which he was crucified. So this is the hope that we confess and profess by faith. But here's the idea of the other two ideas. It gives us confidence. Because we have this hope, we have confidence to enter in. But if we waver in this confidence, we will fail to confess it, profess it, by what we say and how we live. Here's the idea. If you have hope that one day... Your sins are going to be totally forgiven. You're going to be totally glorified. Enter into God's presence. That gives you confidence. Amen? That gives you confidence. That confidence gives you a boldness to profess that hope, confess that hope, not only with your lips, but with your life. And that's why we took time last week to talk about how to actually draw near and put it... because. It means nothing to go around and say, hey, I can enter God's presence whenever I want, and then not do it. Well, then, we're no different than a lost person who doesn't know Him. But when you have this hope that I can enter in now, and one day I'm going to live in God's presence, then you have confidence by faith to draw near, and it comes out in your confession, I have a God that's alive and living. Did you hear the report from Roger? Why are these believers able to suffer the loss of wife and home and possessions and say, I'm sticking with Jesus? Because they have a hope that's bigger than material possessions. And they have a confidence that God is real and this isn't a lie that they're buying into. And therefore, they profess with their lips and their life and they hold fast. Just look at Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 35 through 39. You see this idea of confidence, confession, and hope. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And that faith produces that hope, and that hope produces that confidence, that courage, and that conviction to persevere. So with that overview... Let's ask and answer three questions about holding fast to our hope. Three questions. Because as I said, this is just a simple statement and it becomes abstract, pie in the sky. Oh, I've got a hope. Oh, I'm going to keep believing if we don't flesh it out. So let's take a look. First question is this. What is the hope we profess and hold fast to? He says hold fast to the profession of your hope. So what is this hope? Let's take a look at it. In the New American Standard, it says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. And a couple other translations take a little more liberty to translate it, and I think they do so accurately. Let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope We affirm. So what is this hope? Well, the first thing that you see in those translations is the hope is the content of what we confess, what we profess, what we affirm. In other words, what we profess is what we say we believe and what we claim shapes our lives. That's our profession. When you say, hey, what's my profession? It's what I say I believe, and it's what I claim uh, will shape how I live on a daily basis. And according to this verse, it should be our hope. It should be our hope. So what is that hope? Well, the simple short answer is it's our salvation. It's our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, very simple, and we could just springboard off of that. But we're in the book of Hebrews. And we have 10 chapters explaining to us what that hope. And so I want to give you four glorious aspects to the hope we profess that's right here that I think is what he's referring to specifically in the book of Hebrews. And here's the first one. Our hope is the promises of the new covenant being fulfilled. The, our hope that we are to profess and let's shape our lives are the promises of the new covenant being fulfilled by Jesus' blood. Now, the probably the simplest way to... When I think about hope, you've got to understand biblical hope is no-so hope, not hope-so hope. I hope I win the lottery. Hope-so hope, okay? And you can pretty much bank on it. You won't. But no-so hope is when you say I know this is happening and I have a confident expectation. That's how I define biblical hope. Confident expectation of our future salvation. And in the book of Hebrews, our hope is in the promises of the new covenant that have been inaugurated by the blood of Jesus. In fact, in chapter 8, he tells us. Why don't you turn there real quickly. Chapter 8, let's look at verse 6. Chapter 8, at verse 6. Both in chapter 8 and chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews lays out the promise of the new covenant that's found in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and is being fulfilled now by the blood of Jesus through those who believe in Him. But notice how he starts this out in verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6. But now He, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant covenant which has been enacted on better promises. A covenant are simply binding promises made between two people. And so what he's saying is the new covenant's better than the old because the new covenant has better promises. And that's what our hope is. And then he goes on to lay out what those promises are in in the rest of chapter 8. But turn back to chapter 10, and in verses 10, 15 through 18, he again repeats these promises. So since we're in 10, let's look at them. Look at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. And here's the promises. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin now i don't want to spend a lot of time on these promises because the last couple messages we've talked about what these promises are i'd summarize them this way in light of verses 15 through 21 it's our hearts being changed from the inside out to love god and obey god It's our sins being canceled and covered so that God doesn't remember them anymore. It's our consciences being cleared from condemnation and rejection. And it's our bodies being cleansed so that we have the hope of having resurrected bodies that can enter and live in the very glorious, white-hot holiness of God. So this is the hope we profess. These promises have been made and established by the blood of Jesus. But they're only possible by our second hope. And here it is. Our hope is the priesthood of Jesus functioning on our behalf. None of these promises would be fulfilled if there wasn't Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who first died offering himself as a perfect sacrifice, rose again from the dead, showing that God's wrath had been satisfied, risen and ascended, presenting his nail-scarred hands, his torn flesh, his nail-pierced feet, and offering himself as that perfect sacrifice, but also as a sinless high priest to sit and intercede for us at the side of God. That's everything you see in 19 through 22. You see, this is our hope. If, if we hold fast, look at uh, Hebrews 3 6. Turn back to Hebrews 3 6. Because I know you're, okay, you're like, okay, I'm filling out these blanks. I know these truths. Da, 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 da. Let's get to something that is new and exciting. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. You've got to ask yourself. Look at verse 6. But Christ was a, was faithful as a son over his house. That's just a way of saying the son was a faithful high priest whose house we are if, if, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Whoa. Okay, so God does this, but by faith, we got to hold firm to this hope. And we Boast in it. We rejoice. Hey, guess what? I'm a believer priest. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And guess what I get to do? I get to draw near to God. I have a hope that if a hurricane wipes everything out, I'm still going to enter into God's presence. I've got a hope that if my 401k goes under, I've got riches in heaven that I've laid up. I've got a hope that if I get rejected, betrayed... And lose my job for my faith, I'm still accepted as a son or a daughter of God. Is that how you boast? Thirdly, our hope is this in the book of Hebrews. Our hope that we profess to believe and should shape how we live is a hope, our hope is the privilege of entering God's presence. With the full assurance of faith that I can come, the hope, our hope is the privilege of entering in. Turn to Hebrews seven nineteen. Turn to Hebrews seven nineteen. I told you that this verse is totally explained by the previous chapter, so we got to keep dipping back. Now, those seven nineteen. Again, the old covenant, which couldn't now under the old covenant, who got to enter God's presence? Priest, how many of them? How often? Once a year. Old Testament believers didn't boast in what we boast in, because they didn't get to do it. They didn't get to do it, but we get to do it. Now look, verse uh, verse (coughs) nineteen. For the law made nothing perfect; it didn't cancel sin. It didn't clear consciences. It didn't enable people to physically enter into God's even earthly, earthly shadow of a presence, much less directly approach Him. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there it on. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. See how He keeps using that word better: a better promises, a better confidence, a covenant, a better hope through which we draw near to God. So I'm showing you that the hope that we are to hold fast to, the hope we are to say we believe, and the hope that should shape the way we live and face trials in life is a hope in the promises of the new covenant being fulfilled on the basis of the priesthood of Jesus Christ functioning on our behalf in order to secure the privilege of entering into God's presence. Wow, that's our hope, right? Okay, and I'm sorry. I know I'm shouting, but I feel like I have to because I'm, I'm pushing through my voice, so uh, forgive me. Plus, I'm excited. Okay, so there it is. Now, again, we do this by faith, but faith, according to Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So again, I want to emphasize to you, we draw near by faith, but we draw near in the hope that one day we're going to see Him face to face. Amen? And we're going to be as holy as He is holy. And we are that way positionally now, but I, you know, I, probably all of us have sinned before we got here this morning. Okay? And the bigger problem is half of us don't know that we did. Okay? Okay. That we're, we're constantly... But we're, 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 we're declared holy, and one day we're going to be holy from the tops of our, our, our head to the bottom of our souls, and we're going to enter into his presence. And so we should profess that, and we should let it shape our lives. Now, here's the last uh, aspect of this hope, and it's this. Our hope is the prospect, the prospect of God's unshakable kingdom coming to this earth and we fully entering into this glorious rest and joy and perfection, no more sin, no more curse, no more crying, McClung's, no more flu. Can we hear an amen? Yeah. Yeah, man, my heart went out to you. But that's all a part of the fall. We live in a fall, but one day we're not going to be sick, okay? I'm not going to have to teach like this. I look forward to that. Now here's the unshakable kingdom. It's promised as early as Hebrews 1.8. Turn to Hebrews (coughs) 1.8. Jesus Christ is not just our Savior. He's our King. He's not here just to hand out, get out of jail cards so that we can live any way I want until I get to heaven. He's here to be my Lord and my King. And if you sent your kids to the Ready Conference, they heard a great message on Jesus is Lord this weekend. But look at Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, He, that is God, says this. He's saying this to Jesus. Your throne, O God. Jesus is God and man. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. He, Jesus is king. Now go to Hebrews 12. Now goes to he, Hebrews 12. And this kingdom is described for us in Hebrews 12, 21 through 29. Hebrews 12, 21 through 29. And again, it's compared to the children of Israel gathered around a mountain, a physical mountain in the wilderness. But you, verse 22, look at verse 22. But you have come... "...to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, not here on earth, but the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect." I believe those are the Old Testament believers, the chosen people of Israel. "...and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It doesn't speak condemnation. It speaks acceptance and righteousness. But look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape, who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He's going to shake and judge and, 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 and recreate the entire universe. Verse 27, this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, material things, things you can see and touch and taste so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain that which is eternal and lasting forever. Verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us, here's how it should, listen, if you profess that you're receiving an unshakable kingdom, then here's what you should be doing and living. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Is that your view of God? Or is he a big Santa, a loving grandpa, a guy that bails you out when you're in trouble, and not someone that you offer gratitude on a daily basis because Oh, living God of a consuming fire, you're also my heavenly Father, and you've provided your Son so that fire won't burn me in eternal hell, but grant me the privilege of entering your presence and offering you praise as a believer priest. Now, in the book of Hebrews, this unshakable coming kingdom is also called a promised city because what is a kingdom without a capital city? It's called a promised country because what is a kingdom? Without a realm. And it's called a promised rest. Who wants to be under a king if he can't bring peace and victory? Amen. And finally, it's a promised assembly that composes all of the true believers of Israel. All the true believers of the church gathered together on this new creation. Beloved, I tell you, this is our hope. This is our hope. And this is what we are to hold fast to. So let me ask you. Is this what you think of regarding your future? And is this what you express in praise in your prayers to God? Is this what you're thinking of when you go to that drudgery of work with that boss who is critical and negative and an unbeliever and, and, and life is hard? you know ladies is this what you're thinking when you you're working two jobs home and work and and when you're when you're when you're tired and the drudgery of everyday life this is what we should be professing and this is what hebrews says if we hold fast our confidence then we are god's people if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end then we are partakers. So, I hope that has done for you what it's done for me th- this week. It's enlarged my understanding of hope. It's made it more specific. It's deepened my thrill and my joy. And I, it's strengthened my hold on it. Because I don't want to let that go. I don't want to let that go. So, that brings question number two. Are you ready? Question number two. What might cause us as believer priests to waver in holding fast to such a great hope? What would cause us to waver? Because apparently, look again at the verse, apparently you can hold to this and you can begin to waver. Apparently you might swerve to the left or the right. Apparently your grip on your hope, can loosen. So I think it behooves us. Did I just say behooves? I did. I did. It behooves us. You know, that's one of those words, if I had to define it, I couldn't define it, but I know I just used it correctly. Or at least I'm assuming that. You know, sometimes you that's, that's when you get read too much. All right. Here's what we should do. We should ask the question, what will cause us to waver, all right? Now, first of all, let's talk about this word wavering. It says, without wavering. The word literally means not to lean in one direction or other, not to bend to the left or to the right, not to deviate. It's the picture of, some, of a pole standing upright and in no way leaning in either direction. So in other words, don't be the leaning tower of Pisa regarding your hope in Christ, right? You know, and it's famous for leaning. Don't be famous for leaning. Don't be famous for drifting away from your hope because it's anchored, sure and secure. It makes me think of Paul's passage. Don't be tossed about by the waves of this fad in the church or this trend in our culture when it comes to holding on to this hope. I just read an article on the uh, like top 10. I think it was the top 10 Christian books sold in America last year. And nearly every one of them were heretical. Now, I'm not going to name names. And, and and listen, if they're the top sellers, that means there's people here, you know, that have read them. And I don't know who you are. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just saying to you, when the top-selling books, we lack discernment. We lack discernment. And when you read books that are popular but not biblical, you will begin to lean. You will begin to loosen. You'll, you'll, you'll say, man, I, I thought this was really important, but ah, this looks even more important, right? And pretty soon, or you'll try to do this. Well, I'm going to hang on to this, but I like this. And pretty soon, you're like Samson. Stuck between two pillars, right, in bondage, compromising. So be like Paul, you know, think about Paul. He said, don't be tossed on the waves, you know, and don't be tossed back and forth by the strong winds of false doctrine. And I thought about, here's some things, here's some things that attack the hope that we just looked at. These four aspects of our hope, don't don't loosen your grip because you hear people say the Bible can't be trusted. The miracles of the Old Testament aren't really that important. That loosens your grip. Don't listen when they say God doesn't keep His promises. Things are going along due to evolution, chance, due to just the forces of physics and science. And they deny that there's a living God who intercedes in history. Don't listen when they say Jesus is one of many ways to God. That Jesus didn't really need to die as our substitute. Well, he died as a loving example. That loosens your grip. That God didn't require his wrath to be satisfied. Because that sounds like child abuse. Don't listen to that. That loosens your grip that we need others to mediate for us like the Virgin Mary or the saints or the Pope or a priest or even a pastor. That we can't draw near to God on our own. Or worse, we can draw near to God who is not really concerned about our sin and how we live on a daily basis. Or maybe you will hear that the kingdom has already fully come And we're able to bring it into this earth by simply doing works of social justice, like feeding the hungry or clothing the orphan or welcoming the refugee. All important, but that's not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes by the gospel and hearts being changed. But you don't want to be fooled by a kingdom that has not come at all. And, ha- and we as saved people are, we're saved, and it doesn't matter how you treat the poor. It doesn't matter if you welcome the refugee. It doesn't matter if you clothe the orphan. You see, there's truth that's in the center of that that remains firm. So these are all reasons why we might waver. Now, how do these things come? What might cause us to waver in holding fast to our profession? Well, G.K. Chesterton, a Christian apologist, said this, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is merely flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins To be a strength. So let me give you four things from from our own lives, but also from the book of Hebrews, from the report that we just heard. Number one, you will loosen your grip on the hope we have in Christ by persisting in willful sin. Persisting in willful sin. When you have that secret sin that you cherish... Or you have something that God has said to forsake or to do and you refuse to do. And you persist in that and you willfully say, you know what? I'm going to keep going this way and I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter. You have loosened the grip. You have loosened the grip. Now, we're going to get into this pretty in depth in the weeks to come because if you look at verse, look at verse 26 of chapter 10, verse 26. He has some serious things to say about this. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Whoa. God doesn't wink at sin among his people. And if we persist in that, we may prove ourselves to have never been saved in the first place. But not all suffering is due to our own sin. We're talking to Molly and flu and these things. We live in a fallen world with fallen people. So, number two, ongoing suffering. Ongoing suffering. Now, if you've never had ongoing suffering where Either you have a disease that just is incurable, or you have problems and just one problem, and you know it's that time in your life when you go, Job, I can relate. Right? Look at verse look at verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says this to his the, the Jewish believers. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, a battle, a spiritual battle. And Here's what happens. And some of you are at that place right now. Some of you have sufferings that you feel every day you're waking up to spiritual warfare. Now, the reality is we all are, but sometimes it gets intense. And you begin to question things like, God, are you up there? God, are you paying attention? God, do you really care about me? And you begin to think, does anyone care about me? And you're thinking, God, do you love me? And we also think this, what did I do? And we start looking at our lives and we're thinking, he's punishing me for something. And what happens is, when we ask those questions for too long and don't go to the Scriptures to find our answers, and the answer is not why, why, but who, then we will loosen our grip on our hope, and suffering will slowly pry the fingers of faith off of what we truly believe. And you don't want that to happen. Thirdly, increasing persecution. Look again at verses 33 and 34. Again, in the weeks to come, we're going to study these passages in depth. But look at 33 through 34. The reason they had this great conflict of suffering was something that we cannot relate to as Christians in the West yet. But our day is coming. But it's what these three men, young men in Mozambique Island, are experiencing for real. It's what the Jewish Christians that this letter was written to. Listen to verses 33 and 34. Here's why your conflict of sufferings, partly by me being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And when I see that word, it means pressure. Pressure. Pressure and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Verse 34, what's he mean? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. There's our word better. What's he mean? Now, by this time, If you paid attention and I've I've taught you and the Holy Spirit has applied it, you know what the better possession is. It's the unshakable kingdom. It's the unshakable city. It's the country that is heaven come down to earth. It's the kingdom of God with Jesus as king and high priest. (coughs) So I will hold off on expounding on that more except to say, by God's providence, we just heard a report that this isn't something 2,000 years ago. This is today. And my big prayer for Roger and Lynn is they associate and they are the shepherd of these people. And when you identify with the persecuted, guess what comes to your home? What? Persecution. And beloved, that's our future. There's already believers in this country, and you've read about it, and we don't have to go into that, who have lost their livelihoods for holding fast to their hope. There's already, every day in this country, people who don't get promotions because they profess their hope in the workplace. There's people who lose jobs. There's kids who are bullied. All of that happens today for those who hold fast to their hope. And the whole point of that persecution is the evil one wants to pry our fingers of faith off of our hope. Are you with me? And then finally, in the West, the the, the materialism of the West, perhaps the greatest reason we waver in our hope is drifting into apathy. Drifting into apathy. And this is uh, laid out for us. Go to chapter 2. The book of Hebrews kind of moves you through a progression. And here's how we start losing our hope. Here's how we begin to fall away from the true and living God. It starts very simply. Look at chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. What happens when a a boat is not anchored to the dock? It drifts away. One minute, the boat's there, and if you're a fisherman, you look up, and you're like, what's that in the distance? It's my boat. Why? Because it happens slowly if it's not anchored. Notice verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels, that's the Old Testament, proved unalterable, Uh, Unchangeable, I'll just translate that for you. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord himself, the king, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him the apostles, God also testifying with them by the signs and wonders, by the various miracles all recorded in the scriptures, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Listen. The reason we don't get excited about our hope, because too often our hope is not in what's coming, it's in what's here. Too often our hope is grounded in the things we buy, our money and the things money can buy. And too often our hope is grounded in our own families and in our own agendas and in our own careers. And when that happens, you don't glory in the hope to come. And when that happens, you begin to do three things. Notice in your notes, what happens when we choose to waver and not hold fast? We throw away our confidence. Maybe the reason this morning that you don't have confidence to draw near to God is because you've loosened the grip on your hope. We throw away our confidence of drawing near. Number two, we shrink back from making our confession. Listen, we don't brag about what we don't hope in, right? Why do we brag about our kids? Because we hope they'll do greater things than we do. Right, why do we brag about our grandkids, right? That's what we do. we 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 brag about what we have confidence in. And there's nothing wrong with bragging about. I brag about my daughter, she just turned nineteen. she's doing great. i'm I'm thrilled for her. I'll tell you all about her. But I need to talk more about my Savior and the hope that I have in him. And ultimately, If we don't hold fast to our hope, we fall away from the promised hope of salvation. And what that all means, we'll have to talk about in the weeks to come, for which I'm thankful because that gives me more time to understand what that means. But but I'll tell you this. There is a danger in the book of Hebrews of people who have felt the impact of the Holy Spirit, who have heard the preaching of God's Word, who have made some sort of profession of faith. But over time, they prove themselves to not hold fast and to fall away. And there's a big question mark over their life. <sighs> Yesterday, I had the privilege of going to the funeral of Frank Drown. If you've been on our Facebook page, you know who that is. He's missionary to Ecuador, friends with the five martyred missionaries of whom Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Yodarian, and two others were martyred. Frank was their friend and had the responsibility to recover their bodies, gather their bodies, and bury in them on a beach in Ecuador, having been brutally killed by the very head-hunting, head-shrinking people that they, the men had given their lives to reach with the gospel. Well, I will tell you this. Yeah, I went because I've read Frank's story. He's been at our church. He lives here in the Kansas City area. And because men like that, they belong in Hebrews 11, Right? And I'll tell you this, there was no question mark over this man's death. There was no doubt what he held to. There was no doubt what he professed. There was no doubt what shaped his life. But far too many professing Christians are buried, and you've got to come up with something to say. And there's that question mark. Have they fallen away? Were they really believers? And if they were, what a wasted life. Only one life. So soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Hold fast. Hold fast. And why should we do that? It's really simple. Why should we as believer priests never ever waver It's in the last part of the verse. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. You say, but I don't know if I can keep holding on. He has hold of you. He has hold of you. And God is a faithful promise maker. And here's the good news. He's a faithful promise keeper. Can I hear an amen? Man, isn't that good? Listen... When we waver, He remains strong, right? When we loosen our grip, His grip remains tight. But here's how you hold fast. You've got to know the promises of God, and more importantly, you've got to know the promise keeper and the promise maker. Because He guarantees that if you will hold fast in your suffering, If you will hold fast in your persecution, if you will hold fast in this materialistic world that's pushing us away from the things of God, if you'll hold fast, it'll be worth it in the end. For there is an unshakable kingdom, and eternal reward. And when we die, your friends and family will not wonder about the question mark. There'll be an exclamation mark. Amen. Over 300 people for a guy that's 95 years old. You're lucky you get 30 people when you're that old. Because all your friends are dead. But you know why? Frank didn't quit ministering in his older age. He didn't quit. He held fast. Man, I hope you do. That's what I pray. And I hope you pray for me. Because I hope I do. Because I know me. And I know what's in my heart, but I know my God. And I know him whom I've entrusted is faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope. And again, we think of our brothers in Mozambique Island, men that we may never meet this side of heaven, but who are suffering and living these verses. And we pray again that the promises of the new covenant, the intercession of our great high priest, the prospect of an unshakable kingdom, will strengthen these men. And I pray that their persecutors will get saved like Saul did and become Paul's on that island. I pray for his wife and children who are pawned seemingly in this confusion. And yet you can work through these circumstances to raise up a generation. And Lord, I pray for our church as we live in this materialistic, confusing, critical, negative society that we will shine as lights because we have a hope That's not built on a political party, not built on a personality, not built on a philosophy, but built on the person, the anchor of our soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, aren't you glad you came this morning? That's encouraging stuff.